Swami Vivekananda said, what we need to do is to attune the subject to the absolute. What it means is, the subject means I, me, myself. And right now we are attuned to the body-mind. I think I am this limited person. I don't think it, I feel it. It's my reality. Attuning the subject to the absolute means shifting the reference of the I. I am Brahman. I am the absolute. I am that unchanging awareness. So shifting that reference. That is the solution. That is the practice. In fact, all practice is there. What we are doing is this. The shifting of the, the attuning of the subject to the absolute, it cannot be done at once. The skillful way of doing it is, first became, become aware of the physical, the gross, the physical, then move to the subtle, then from there move to the causal, and from there Awareness of awareness. So first catch hold of something that can link the physical to the subtle, and that is the breath. So that's why we first become aware of the breath. Attention is drawn to the breath. Attention is already on the physical world, on a thousand different things. Withdrawing the attention from the thousand different things to the breath in one location, that is could be the stomach, could be the nostrils, with inflow and outflow of breath. After the mind calms down to a certain extent there, then begin to notice more subtle things, perceptions. Sound is a good thing because your eyes are closed. So sound is a good thing to turn your attention to from the breath to sound. Not any sound, generally sounds coming and going, not any particular sound. Stay there for some time. Various sounds which come and go. Then become aware that the sounds are arising and disappearing in awareness. This is a crucial phase where you're moving from the subtle to the causal. Subtle to the causal. Sounds are arising and disappearing in awareness. If you say, no Swami, the sounds are arising and disappearing in the air outside. No, then you are still in the physical. You must know what it means, that sounds are arising and disappearing in your awareness. It's a fact, simple fact. It's as simple as saying that you are aware of the sound, that's all. So sounds are arising and disappearing in awareness. That's the only place where you hear sound. Where do we hear sound? Do we actually hear the vibration in the air outside? No, we are not even aware of that. No, only when it comes into the ears and transmitted by the auditory nerves to the brain and the brain center, somehow it is converted into a mental impression which is presented to us in the mind, in our awareness. That's where we are aware of sound. So sounds arise and disappear in awareness. Become aware that not only sound, all other perceptions, Sight and pressure and heat and comfort, discomfort, smells, tastes, all of them arise, shine and disappear in awareness. Not as a practice. Notice notice it as a fact. It is true. That is true. It's a fact. Notice it. 
This is, you're moving to the causal level, from the subtle to the causal. Then, notice this awareness itself. This awareness itself cannot be objectified. It is that which objectifies. Sounds are objects. Smells, tastes, forms, they're all objects. But the awareness itself is a pure subject. Then notice how all sensations arise, change and disappear in awareness. Awareness does not arise or change or disappear. How the sounds and sensations are many, many, myriad. Awareness is one. Unchanging, constant, like a luminous space. It's not luminous in a physical sense like this. Luminous because it's awareness. That is our essential nature, what we are, this impersonal awareness. There, when you become aware of awareness, it's only a way of speaking. There you have moved from the causal to the absolute. This is attunement of the subject to the absolute. This realization, this knowledge, once for all, that I am that ever-shining awareness, on which we put an overlay of thoughts, perceptions, ideas, on which an overlay of sensory inputs, sound, smell, taste, touch, and then which we again solidify into, in our own awareness, into an external world, into a body, and interact with it. But it's all the time that awareness only. This is attuning the subject to the awareness, to the absolute. What, what good does it do? All good is there. When the subject is lost in objects, samsara. When the subject is merged into that absolute, into that awareness, I am that awareness, moksha, liberation. That awareness cannot die. It's not born, it does not die. That awareness cannot fall sick. That awareness is, is neither uh, delighted nor uh, depressed. That awareness is not bored or excited. That awareness does not need anything. If you notice in your own, own intuition, that awareness, do you think it needs anything? No. The body needs food and shelter. and Mind needs education and entertainment and, and praise and support. But that awareness does not need anything. That awareness is the same in everybody. Same in everybody is a way of speaking. Actually, everybody is in that awareness. It's not that the awareness is in everybody. And you are that. It's the absolute. It's the one reality of the universe. And that is the meaning of Om. When we chant Om, A-U-M-A. The Sanskrit sounds, put it together, it becomes Om. A stands for the physical, the gross, the Breathing, the, the breath itself. Well, no, the earth stands for the, the, the actual physical sensation of breathing. Then U, as we go from uh, Om, we go into the U, that stands for the subtle, the in-between. Where you're listening to the sounds in the awareness, the sensation sounds in the awareness. Still objects, but subtle. When you move and notice that it's in a space of awareness, they all merge back into the awareness, that's the causal, that is mm, when om ends. Beyond that, the real you, the awareness itself, the silence beyond om, that's the meaning of om. 
Okay, that's the Vedanta lesson for today. <laughs> so we have questions from all over the world. And no matter how many of these sessions we hold, we are still, we are, we are far behind. We keep accumulating lots and lots of huge backlog. I'm afraid I might have to be born again to answer all the questions. So, huh? Why afraid? Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. Why afraid? So, we shall take a question from the internet audience, and then we shall, uh, I invite people from the live audience here uh, to come forward with their questions. So think up your questions and raise your hand when I'll ask you, and then you can come here and ask the question. Yes. Uh, Swamiji, we've got a lot of questions on your favorite subject, consciousness. Okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Surprise. Uh, the first one is from Chaitanya S. Ramana Maharashi's direct practice of who am I takes me to a point where every little movement in the mind triggers the root question, which centers me very close to a daunting silence. But something in me refuses to go any nearer to that silence, which triggers another movement, and I'm back at the starting line, ready to repeat the loop. This practice does give me a sense of peace, but how do I overcome this aversion of the unknown and start to revel in that silence? Very good question. This refers to Ramana Maharshi. You know the famous, who am I? Am I audible to everybody? Yes, at the back. So what he would do is, anything that you ask, he will ask you, who is asking? The simple teaching method. He throws the question. It's a kind of philosophical jujitsu. He throws the question back upon yourself, yes. So, uh, how do I get peace of mind? Who is asking this? Find out that. What is the best way of meditation? Who is asking this? Find out that. Sometimes people misunderstood. Somebody came and asked for spiritual advice and... Uh, Ramana Maharshi apparently said, go back the way you've come. And the shocked person stood up to leave and said, no, no, that's not what I mean. Where you have come means this person, from where it has come, we trace it back. Basically what we were doing today. Yeah. Then there's a, a funny story of, uh, and I confirmed that from a, from a follower of Ramana Maharshi that it's true, it really happened. Somebody who was a devotee of God, not so much interested in this, who am I? So he came and said, I, this, this method doesn't appeal to me, but I have a lot of love for Narayana, Vishnu, for Narayana. Is that all right? And the Maharshi said, yes, yes. And so when I die, will I go to Vaikuntha, the heaven, to the abode of Vishnu, Narayana? Yes. Oh, I will. Yes. And there will I see Narayana? Yes. Oh, I will see Narayana, Vishnu, God. Yes. And will Narayana see me? <laughs> yes. Yes. He will see you. Oh, he will see me. Look at me. Yes. And will he speak to me? Narayana, will God speak to me? Yes. What will he say to me? What will he say to me? He'll say, find out who I am. <laughs> find out who you are. Who am I? Now, when you try it, as this person has, many people, they, they do that. And for hours and hours in a day, 
It's not like a mantra. It's not like that. You know, the way it is done is, the actual practice is, it's a form of Vedantic Nididhyasana, Vedantic meditation. The way it's done is, any sensation, any thought that comes up, just ask, to whom is it coming? So that's the way you do it. So thought comes, who is thinking this? A sensation comes, who is thinking this? Now when you do that, for some time, you're not looking for an answer, you're trying to discover there's a reality. You're not looking for an answer which you can write an essay on. When you discover, you actually it's a reality within, you feel that. And what will happen is very soon a peace descends upon you. The uh, frantic activity of the senses and of the mind cease. There's a silence which descends upon you, which he no noticed, this person who's writing. He has noticed it. If you try it sincerely, silence comes. And this silence is the deepest possible silence. I think Emily Dickinson wrote about it on silence. Very beautiful poem. I, I, wish, I mean, I don't remember the exact words, but um, there's something like this. Different kinds of silence. He says, there is the silence of the seas, of sailor alone in the seas. Imagine the vast ocean and uh, one little boat and a sailor. I just sort of imagine that. So there is a sound of the waves maybe, but there's a deep silence. There's nothing there. I remember I visited New Zealand and I went to a beach, very cold and lonely beach, and there's ocean in front. And I asked, what's there beyond that? And they said, nothing. This is the last, this is the end of the earth. After that, this ocean goes on and on and on to Antarctica. So imagine from New Zealand to Antarctica, nothing, just ocean. Vast ocean and the vast sky. Imagine a tiny boat. There's the silence of the sailor on the seas, alone on the seas. There is the silence, she goes on one by one. There's the silence of death. When a person whom you knew, who has passed away, suppose you're sitting near a coffin, or near the grave, or near the funeral fire of the person whom you knew for years and decades and passed away, and you sit quietly there, there's a deep silence there. And then she says, these shall be noise compared to, this is the final silence she says, these shall be noise compared to that polar silence of the soul turned within itself. How beautiful. The polar silence of a soul turned within itself. The soul turned within itself, that happens when you pursue consistently, who am I? So deep silence comes. Now, here's the question. It's a very subtle question. If you follow, you'll understand. And the answer is also very important. His question was, there's a fear of unknown. I retreat from that silence. Don't. That silence is not the ultimate reality. But first, something has to be done. Notice, that silence is appearing to you, the meditator. Just as the world appears to you, the silence of the world also appears to you. It's not alien. It's not something different. It is very intimate. It is your own. It is the, your, it's the closest to you. So what you do is sit in that silence for a while. But that's not the end. The important thing comes next. 
because I have met people, meditators who have gone to Arunachala where Ramana Maharshi meditated, who have meditated long time and they have experienced this silence and they have sat in that silence and they say, they told me, they say, it is the most life-transforming, wonderful exper- uh, experience of my life. And I wish I could recapture that again. What do I do now? What next? First, I wish I could recapture that again. And second, uh, what do I do now, next? The answer is this. That silence is also not the goal. When you have that silence, or at least simulate, recreate that silence in your mind, then you do this. You ask what Ramana Maharshi would have wanted you to do. At that point, ask to whom or to what is this silence appearing. Then you will go to a silence beyond silence. Which is not a silence which comes and goes. Which is a silence which is always there right now. We only don't notice it. That silence is Atman, the Turiya. The underlying consciousness. That awareness of awareness which we are talking about. It is there only beyond silence. What is that silence? First of all, the deepest possible silence. That's the silence of the objective world. When all objects are erased. Physical world, body, sensations, thoughts, emotions, ideas, personality, all not there. A deep, as Emily Dickinson says, a polar silence falls upon you. That's the silence, the absence of objects. But that absence also is shining in that awareness which you are. That pure subject, not an object. There the last turn has to be done. And that turn has to be done carefully, otherwise thoughts will start again. The turn is not done by an actual question. It's just your investigation of that who am I. That will carry you beyond that last silence. Beyond that, I cannot say anything more. What you will discover beyond that is the goal of life, is you yourself. And that never goes away. Once you have discovered it, you never feel that I found something, can I get it back again? No. Not only that, you will discover something remarkable. You don't have to go to that silence also to discover that. You will find even in the midst of this, even when the movie is running, you notice what is the screen. See, first you have to switch off the movie to notice the screen behind it. But after that, let the movie run. You know where the screen is. You're aware of it. That will happen. Good question. Um, let's, you, you want to add one more question? We, All right. We've got a few on these. So. Let's take one more. One more. This is from Bihav P. In Nirvana Shatakam, Adi Shankara says... I am neither the seven materials of which the body is made, nor am I the five sheaths, physical, vital, mental, intellect, bliss. I am existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute. I am he, I am he, I am he. The two statements mention bliss. It's negated once, but then bliss is accepted. Is it a contradiction? Pray please clarify. All right, this is a question about Ananda. You know, the ultimate reality in Vedanta is called Satchidananda, existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute. But when you say Ananda, um, bliss absolute, P 
people immediately have a confusion or a wrong notion. They feel that so then there must be some kind of extraordinary happiness, bliss there. The answer is yes and no. The answer is both yes and no. Is it true that there is great joy in spiritual life of enlightenment? Certainly there is. But is it true that that ultimate reality is a feeling of joy? No. No. Ananda is not another kind of feeling of joy. Maybe a very sublime, very nice happiness, great peace. No, not even that. It's beyond that. The way to understand it is like this. Sat, existence. Existence absolute is not a thing which exists. You see, a chair is a thing which exists. Table, light, earth, sky, these are things which exist. They are things, they exist, they are there. You can enumerate, list them out, you can point them out. A body is a thing that exists. Even inside the subtle things like thoughts, emotions, feelings, they, are also, they also exist. No matter how, how for a brief while. So they are things which exist. They are different from each other. They come and go. They are distinguishable from each other. But existence itself is not a thing which exists. Immediately our mind will say, so it doesn't exist. So it is nothing. It's an, it's an immediate uh, doubt which comes to our mind. If it's not a thing which exists, so it's nothing. No, 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 no. It is the reality of all things. It is more real than things which exist. Let me ask you. A whole range of golden ornaments at Tiffany's. If you go there. That's real, right? They exist. They're better. <laughs> You're paying so much for them. <laughs> so they exist. But let me ask you. What's more real? Those necklaces and, uh, and bracelets and tiaras are the gold which, which is their substance, which is real. Is the gold which is real? You said, no, both. Not both. If both were real, you could have them separately. Can you have, have a tiara apart from the gold which constitutes it? No. It will disappear. The ornament disappears without the constituent substance. This lectern will disappear if you take the wood out of it. But the gold can exist without the tiara. Is, it that, is that not true? It can exist as a lump of gold. It can exist as a necklace. It can exist as a bracelet. Different forms and names and forms come and go. The substance is one reality. Similarly, just use that example to understand existence. Just being. And it's not alien. It's really what you are. What we are trying to understand in the meditation earlier, that awareness, that is also the same as being. Now that being, which is us, it not only is, it's not a dark, dull existence. It shines. That shining of that existence is called Chaitanya Chit, consciousness. That when it falls upon the mind and lights up the mind, is the awareness which we are experiencing right now. We all feel we are conscious and aware. At least some of us are. <laughs> you take a cup of coffee and you say, Oh, I'm more aware now. You're not more aware. It's the mind which becomes more alert and therefore reflects awareness better. Captures and channels this awareness better. You are the constant awareness. So consciousness is also not something that comes and goes. It's the mind which flickers, not consciousness itself. 
just like consciousness is not a particular flickering of the mind, though it is behind all flickerings of the mind. Just as existence is not a particular existing thing, though it is behind the existence of every existing thing. Similarly, ananda is not a particular flash of pleasure or bliss. It is the reality, it is the joy or the bliss which, which is experienced as all different pleasures of the world, all different happinesses of the world, all different fulfillment of the world. It is the source of all value, meaning, fulfillment in, this, in, in life. But in itself, it's not a particular feeling. I hope that makes sense. Again, let me reassure you, people get little, uh, oh, so I can't experience it. it. What good is that then? Don't worry. The more spiritual we become, more we advance in spiritual life, the happier we'll, we will be. It's because it's the mind which reflects that ananda better and better and better. A purer mind, a more spiritual mind, reflects ananda better, and therefore you are happier. Therefore the saint is very happy. There's a saying that uh, St. Teresa said, uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avia, he, she said, uh, a sad nun is a bad nun. <laughs> we also say that. Why should a monk be unhappy? I remember when we were novices, we used to laugh and joke so much that I think uh, an elderly gentleman who visited the ashram complained to the, the, to the head, the, the, the abbot of the monastery, that they are these youngsters, they need to be disciplined. <laughs> that story I'll tell you, yes. But this one it had happened to us. And what the abbot replied, the head of our ashram, uh, I can't re repeat in polite company. So <laughs> but the point being, why should these boys not be happy? They don't have your cares you know, <laughs> of the world. So, but he put it in far cruder language. What you, what you are referring to Swami Turiyananda, it is a story. Um, in the, you know, he was a very strict Vedantic monk. So the young monks in Belurmat, he heard one day in the next room, they were laughing and joking in the evening. And it was a sort of uproarious thing. So Swami Turiyananda went and scolded them. What are you so happy about? Have you become enlightened? Have you realized God? What's there to laugh so much about? And then, and of course they were abashed and kept, fell silent. Was he's a senior Swami, a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna and Mr. Stern. But luckily I think Swami Vijayananda who was there, uh, who later started the Vedanta work in Argentina. So he was very, um, he had a ready wit. So he said, Swami, to Turiyanandaji, that um, um, when we read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, where Turiyanandaji himself is there in the, in the book, we keep reading again and again, all laugh. And they are just laughing, uproar jokes and laughing and humor. They are having an uproarious good time in the presence of Sri Ramakrishna. And then Turiyanandaji smiled and then she said, All right, you are right. All right, have fun, be happy. <laughs> yeah. As we go ahead in spiritual life, life becomes internally. I don't know, externally, the, whatever our karma is, that will continue. But a deep joy comes from within. A, a causeless joy. We're generally happy. Uh, that's there. So that will be there. But when Shankaracharya sings, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham, he means that absolute ananda. Of which Shankaracharya later in Taittiriya Upanishad commentary, he says, all the joys in the world which men are mad after is just spray 
from the ocean of ananda within each one of us. Anybody from this audience, you have questions? So one by one we'll come. The gentleman here, please tell us your name and ask the question. Then who was there next? You were there, we'll come next. Hello Swamiji, my name is Namit Gupta. I'm gonna read the question that I have please written do. already. After realization and knowledge of the self as Brahman through a combination of Advaitic inquiry into who am I, surrender to the Divine Feminine and Pitanjali's Samadhi, it would mean that the person has transcended the fear of death. Then why do the preconditioned patterns of the mind such as fear and insecurity related to worldly problems at the level of duality, such as someone insulting you at work, not vanish immediately after the realization? The second part to this question is, whether it is necessary to continue to do more spiritual sadhana to, to transform these patterns of negative behavior in the mind at the duality of subconscious mind and some of these inherent or some of these inherent vrittis cannot be changed no matter what good question so after you have a breakthrough a clarity a deep clarity that i get it i know that this, I am this unchanging, immortal awareness. And the whole universe is basically an appearance within me. They are also not different from me. But after that, that same awareness in front of me in the form of my boss, and he came, comes and yells at me. And then I feel insulted and annoyed and, and hurt. And because he's my boss, I can't punch him on the nose as I would like to do. <laughs> so I'm very, I am Brahman, but I'm very annoyed with the boss Brahman. Or my children don't listen to me, and I feel uh, frustrated. Then, then what do I do? Why do I? What do I do is different. But your question was, why do I feel insulted? Why do I feel frustrated when I know that I am, I am there? I'll answer this at two levels. One is the direct answer in classical Vedanta. You, what you have asked is a, is a question that is a very old question, you'll be happy to know, that Vedantins from the time of Shankar or even before that, they have faced this problem. This is called Viparita Bhavana. Viparita Bhavana, this is an obstacle in Advaita Vedanta. Viparita Bhavana means contrary tendencies. See, there are two fundamental problems. After learning all this, there are two fundamental problems which have to be overcome. One is called Asambhavana, impossibility obstacle. The next one is called Viparita Bhavana, contrary tendencies obstacle. You are asking about the second one. But let's take the first one very quickly. After I listen to the classes, I study it and think about it, I know the teaching. So the first problem that comes to me is this Asambhavana, which is, I know what you are trying to say, I know what the texts are trying to say, I have read so many books, attended so many talks, but I don't get it. How am I Brahman? This is not what you are asking, you, this, but this thing can come. So this thing is overcome by repeated uh, listening to the teaching, studying it, and thinking about it. So raising questions, this is the stage of mananam, reflection, uh, rational argumentation. Raise the question again and again. Your own mind will answer it, your fellow students will answer it, the teacher should answer it. And there are any number of texts where you'll find all the questions that we can conceive of and many more besides which we can never conceive of. They have been raised and answered satisfactorily. Once you get this, to a certain extent, clarity comes. Now you can say, I not only know the teaching, but now I get it. 
I have made a breakthrough. It's clear to me. I get it. I'm convinced about it. It's fine. But after that comes the next question which you have asked, which is Viparita Bhavana. I get the teaching. I'm convinced about it. It seems right to me. It's real. But I can't seem to live it. Again and again problems come in day-to-day life in the form of Brahman who is in the form of the boss <laughs> or the disobedient child or you know, the disappointing child or whatever. <laughs> so what do I do? First of all, why does this come? This comes because these are, remember, in the mind. Just as the physical body is conditioned. After enlightenment, Ramakrishna's body remains Ramakrishna's body and Swami Vivekananda's body remains Swami Vivekananda's body. The physical body remains the same. The mind also has its conditionings. And this also remains the same. And uh, the enlightenment dawns in that mind. Now you have to soak that mind in that that realization, that breakthrough. Once conviction is there, then you have to stay with it. This is the third stage called Nididhyasana. Vedantic meditation. So what we are talking about when Ramana Maharshi says, who am I? It starts like a question. Shravana. Then it becomes an inquiry. Manana. But then very soon it becomes a meditation. Nididhyasana. So like that. Any Vedantic practice must ultimately culminate in Nididhyasana. Swami Vivekananda puts it this way. That tell yourself again and again. That you, you stabilize in that. That I am... I am that reality. I am he, Soham. I am that reality. Until your, it tingles with every drop of your blood. What does that mean? You have assimilated the truth. Then it becomes easy to live that truth. You really feel that way. Not just think that way. Not just understand that way. It's, it's an obvious reality. Then it will be easier to live that and then to go back to your earlier patterns of behavior. But there will be a phase when earlier patterns of behavior... Yeah. They seem to go contrary to your realization. Now, a follow-up about spiritual practices. Why does this happen? In um, Vidyaranya Swami's book, Jivan Mukti Viveka, these things are discussed. What is enlightenment while living? I am Brahman, I realize that, all this is Brahman. If I can live it and manifest it and get the full benefit from it. Full benefit, transcendence of sorrow. Establishment in Ananda, this ultimate bliss. If I can get that, then I have got this enlightenment while living, Jivan Mukti. Now he says, there are two paths to this. One he calls Kritopasti, another one he calls Akritopasti. Kritopasti literally means who has finished spiritual practices. What are spiritual practices? Not only the Vedantic path of Jnana Yoga, but Karma Yoga. Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga and Dhyana or Raja Yoga. If my practices have been long standing and sincere and hard, I put in the hard work, the... um, cleansing of the mind. Swami Vivekananda puts it in this way. He says, the only thing that we can do is polish the mirror. If I polish the mirror long and hard enough, scrubbed it nicely, then when that breakthrough comes, I'll be able to live it very quickly. But if I have not done that, you see, if I have not done that, is it possible to have that breakthrough? It is possible. Vidyanya Swami says, there, are, there is a group of people 
who are akrito upasthi who have not yet completed uh, spiritual practices to a satisfactory level they have been trying maybe they have been meditating maybe they have served people maybe they have devotion to god also but not very deep not transformational and yet by the study of vedanta he says he says by the grace of guru or grace of god or by their great good past karma notice he does not say by attending many many classes or reading many books <laughs> he says they all that breakthrough usually comes because of very good karma in the past lives or by the blessings of the guru or by the special blessings of god it's it's comes by that um people can have a spontaneous kind of uh, awakening it it becomes real but they have not completed the preliminary practices uh, um, you know the mind hasn't been quietened and focused by deep long years of meditation the heart hasn't been been cleansed by unselfishness no selfish desires for myself the uh, the emotions have not been pacified and purified and sublimated by by one pointed devotion to god they have not been done a little bit maybe not enough then what happens is this person what will happen to this person and vidyaranya makes a very clear point that this person because there is a genuine awakening if it's there at all there is a genuine awakening at the point of death this person will get moksha there will be no rebirth for that person but here is the problem until that point this person will still be subject to the ups and downs of life i mean ups and downs of life will come to everybody but this person will still keep reacting to it because the mind is not fully established in the realization so what this person has to do vidyarnya says he will not get the get the joys of jivan mukta this um, uh, the sadhus in the himalayas they know this very well they have been cultivating it for thousands of years now they very clearly if you ask this question they will tell you in one sentence wo jivan mukti ka vilakshan sukh anubhav nahi karega in hindi they will not get the unique joy of jivan mukti if that spiritual practice is not been done but realization is there a, a, a breakthrough so he makes a distinction um, vidyaranya swami tattva gyana realization of the reality this is what you're talking about but then there are two other things to it two other components one is called vasanakshaya the removal of desires purification of the mind second one is called manonasha a very misleading term it literally if you say it means destruction of the mind but it actually means concentration of the mind a deeply meditative one pointed mind now unless the purification of the mind and the one pointed of the mind have been achieved the realization of the truth is difficult to manifest in life um you will know it you will find it a struggle it's not that you will not be able to live it you will be able to live it also if it's really there it will manifest itself but it will be a struggle stabilized and so it needs to be stabilized now how do you stabilize it then vidyarnya swami it is a whole chapters on it two whole chapters on the stabilization um, jivan mukti viveka they're good english translations i recommend the translation by swami mokshadananda ji advaita ashram publication i knew the swami a very great vedanta teacher one of the few i would unhesitatingly say who was enlightened in this life the only book he ever wrote uh, he translated it so i mean there is another other translations are also there but i've compared there are crucial passages where this swami mokshadan ji gives a slightly different turn it's available yes in calcutta uh, advaita ashram 
So they gives a turn to it, which directly shows that this person is enlightened. Hmm. And the other person may be a good scholar, but hasn't seen the, the inner pointing in that phrase. Yeah. This comes from that. So anyway, two whole chapters are there. How do you stabilize this? So basically what it means is very simple. All the practices that we have been doing so far, japa, meditation, a mantra, service to others, transcending our desires, all of those have to be intensified. The same practices continue, but there is now a whole shift in attitude. Earlier I was doing meditation for what? Mind will become concentrated, attain samadhi, I will realize that truth. Now you have already realized it. Earlier you were seeking, now you have found it. Earlier by all those practices you were trying to find something, but now you have found it. But now you are using those practices to stay there. It was very self-centered in a, in a sense, right? Like you're seeking because the ego wants to right. realize But it. now you've transcended it. And now you've touched reality. But because the mind flickers, you um, feel that you're not settled in that reality. To get that feeling of being settled in that reality and able to live it day to day, intensify. Vidyaranya Swami says, the seeker does intense spiritual practices, the genuine, sincere seeker. But the person who has actually seen, has found, does more spiritual practices. Hmm. Now you understand why um, the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, who directly by the grace of Guru, by the time Sri Ramakrishna was there at the time, Vivekananda, Brahmananda, Turiyananda, Shivananda, all of them, without exception, they all got that breakthrough and they realized in the form, in the, in the saguna aspect, in the different visions of God with form, and also the, what we are talking about, Brahma Jnana, all of them realized without any exception. And yet, after Sri Ramakrishna passed away, mm -hmm. you notice, all of them without exception, poured themselves into the most austere kind of spiritual practice. So, and they were asked, what are you doing? You are already enlightened. And all of them, each of them, at least in two places I know, Swami Brahmananda, Swami Shivananda, they give the same answer. What he gave us, we are trying to make it our own. What does this make, mean, make it our own? They've already got it. It's just that they are big, big, they're soaking themselves in it. They, they say, you know, when you prepare Rasagulla, the Bengali sweet, it must be soaked in the syrup. When you are cooking a spicy food, after everything is finished, you just let it simmer, you put it, let it marinate. You put a lid on it. It's already done, but you put a lid on it. And let it stay there like that. It absorbs more nicely. Similarly, this Vedantic meditation. And it, it, is, um, it can be a long process. And that's why you will find many of the greatest sadhakas, they are no longer seeking. They are found. They are just establishing themselves. I, I read that uh, Sri Ram, Bhagavan Ramarama Rishi uh, meditated for about seven yes. or eight years. After, after the breakthrough. He had the breakthrough when he was a teenager. Yes. He, imagine what is it like to be dead. And he immediately saw he is beyond death. Yes. And he realized that he is the Atman. But after that, what happened? Long time. In the deepest possible meditation. Nirvikalpa Samadhi. When Sri Ramakrishna got Nirvikalpa Samadhi by, from Totapuri. The, Totapuri's teaching. After Totapuri left, Sri Ramakrishna remained like that for six months. Barely coming out to eat. He says, my hair grew matted. Birds <laughs> would... Uh, so, uh, that kind, that is tremendous. Most people would die if they tried that. But a kind of marination is necessary. Establishing yourself in that. 
and that that is the continuation of the spiritual practices you are doing. Holy Mother, Ma Sharada, put it in the most simple way. Somebody got mantra diksha from the Holy Mother from her, and asked, "I have got mantra diksha from you. Do I need to <laughs> repeat the mantra?" <laughs> Shortcut. Her answer was very interesting. My child. At the time of death, Thakur will come for you. Sri Ramakrishna will come for you. That's, her, that's the way, a, a dualistically bhakti way of putting that you have got moksha. You will get moksha. Then she says, but my son, my son, if you want to feel the joy of spiritual life, then you must practice in this life. Look, exactly what Vidyaranya said 700 years ago. At the point of death, this person who has made a breakthrough uh, will get moksha. There's no doubt. This is the last life for such a person. But it must be a genuine breakthrough. Yes. It's not a, oh, I get it. And then after the class, it's gone again. <laughs> no. The sign of a genuine breakthrough is it will never go away. Mm-hmm. It will always be there. You try to forget it also, it will be there. All the time. And it will be available to you at an instant call. But even that is not full enlightenment. But she says, just like Vidyaranya. Vidyaranya says, in this life, if you want to taste Jivan Mukti, enlightened while living, that real freedom, bliss, that um, transcendence of sorrow, even in the midst of sorrow, if you want to experience that, then you must uh, do this, that the other two components have to be completed. She simply says, if you want to taste the joy in this life, job well, you have to practice. One more thing I will add here, most very important, but I could leave it out, but you must take it carefully. It's very dangerous what I'm going to say. Yeah, now everybody perked ears. <laughs> this question which you're asking, a genuine question, you must do exactly what Vidyaranya Swami has said or Holy Mother says, what the saints have done. Very good, good guide is to look at the lives of saints. But I must add, what would an, someone like Shankaracharya or Gaudapada have said? They would say this, this very question you're asking, is it a question that the Atman would ask or the mind would ask? The mind, for sure. The mind asks that question. Yes. I am not st- steady there. What is not steady there? Is the Atman not steady in Atman? Always is. Always is. What is not steady there? The mind. Yeah, I want to make the mind steady. Can the mind ever become steady in the Atman? Never. Ultimately, all the spiritual practices will bring you to the, this insight. The Atman is perfect, is fine. And the mind? Dualistic. <laughs> Not worth bothering about. <laughs> oh, that, that question? Uh, I'll come to you. Yeah, oh, that philosophy, you know, classic philosophy thing of mind and matter. Mind and matter. Uh, what is matter? Never mind. <laughs> what is mind? No matter. <laughs> yes. The, the what? Yes, please ask the question. It happens to me. So you are... <laughs> so, um, please, thank you very much. Please thank ask you. the question. You can ask that. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. I'll repeat it. Please ask that. Um, yeah, please go ahead. The question is, sometimes the mind itself gives the answer. 
Sometimes the question is, she's asking the question is, sometimes the mind itself gives the answer. That is true. That is true. But, you know, I'll add something to that. Even when the mind gives the answer, it's good to know, to check, to verify from a teacher or a text. I get the answer. But if I find the same answer in Kathamrita, if I find the same answer in Vidyarnya Swami, oh, good. You, you feel, yes, that's right. Also in, in the Bible. Yes, in the Bible, in the Quran, wherever. In the, in the great teachings, in, in the Buddhism. You find echoes of this everywhere in the highest teachings of the different uh, religions of the world. You, f- you find the same thing. I don't know if she will be mad at me for pointing this out. But we have a very distinguished visitor in our midst today. Justice Ruma Pal. She, is, uh, she was in... Oh, Alright, she's mad at me now. <laughs> you're embarrassed. But, Alright, but you're at an age where you shouldn't be embarrassed. So you're, you're above that now. Now, uh, she was one of the first women judges of the Supreme Court? The third. the third one. So imagine something like Ruth Bader Ginsburg for up India. So, she's, so she, uh, you're visiting for a conference. Yes, oh. I lecture UPenn. UPenn. So welcome to you. And thank you for the question. Can we have a question from the internet uh, audience? You wanted to, to ask a question? Tell us your name. Amar naam Mo, and ami Banglai jigesh kuchhi. Tikache. You will ask. She'll ask in Bengali. I'll translate for you. And uh, yes, you can ask. Shami ji, Amar mantra hoye gaye Don't tell mantra. In front of <laughs> that is that is secret. Yes. Kintu ami apnar vaidantik meditation er video gulo dekhechi. Ei prathom ami ekhani eshi apnar shathe meet korte. তা তাতে আমি দেখেছি ওমটা প্রলং করে বলা হচ্ছে এবং সেটাই মেডিটেশন কিন্তু আমার মন্ত্র লম্বা মন্ত্র What is the question? Uh, don't don't mention don't mention the mantra, don't mention your uh, inner spiritual experiences. In many cases, yes, many cases. So don't mention it, yeah. So what do we do in our long mantra to fit our mantra? All right. So what Mo is asking, you're from Calgary. What Mo is asking is, I've been initiated, I've got a mantra from a guru, but now we listen to the Vedanta teachings, and uh, we've also heard a little bit about Vedantic meditation. For example, today, one, one way, it's, there's the prolonged chanting of Om uh, with the meaning, that's not the only Vedantic meditation. There are many, many, there are many, many techniques. So, but how do I fit that with what I've been taught? She's asking. So, Guru has given a mantra and an Ishta Devata, uh, a chosen deity, and a way to practice. So, all that has been given when I've been initiated. So, it's a good question. Um, many people have that question, especially when they listen to Advaitic teachings. How do I fit it? How do I fit these two? My answer is don't. For God's sake, don't fail. What the Guru has said, Guru Jaya Bolechen, I'll tell you in Bengali, Guru Jaya Bolechen, Je Mantra Diyechen, Je Bhabi Dhyan Korte Bolechen, Sheta Akhunno Thakbe, Oirokam Thakbe. 
যেমনটি বলেছেন তেমনটি করে যাবে ডোন্ট ট্রাই টু এটার সঙ্গে ওটাকে মেশাবেন না বেদান্তের যে যে আমাদের শ্রবণ মনন নির্দেশন আলাদা ওই যে সকাল সন্ধ্যে বসছি আমি গুরুর মন্ত্র ইষ্ট নিয়ে ওটা কিন্তু একদম ডিস্টার্ব করতে নেই ওটা যেমন বলেছেন তেমন কিপ দিস টু কম্পার্টমেন্টালাইজড দুটো আলাদা তো লেট মি অ্যান্সার হোয়াট লেট মি ট্রান্সলেট হোয়াট আই জাস্ট সেট টু হার বিকজ মেনি পিপল হ্যাভ দিস কোয়েশ্চেন দ্য অ্যান্সার ইজ ইফ ইউ হ্যাভ বিন ইনিশিয়েটেড ইন আ পার্টিকুলার ওয়ার্শিপ ট্রেডিশন মেডিটেশন অ্যান্ড ডিভোশনাল ট্রেডিশন লাইক ইন দ্য রামাকৃষ্ণ অর্ডার অর আদার ইফ ইউ হ্যাভ আ গুরু হ্যাজ গিভেন ইউ দ্য টিচিং কিপ ইট স্যাক্রোসাইট ডোন্ট মেডল উইথ ইট ডোন্ট ইম্প্রুভ ইট আফটার এভরি লেকচার দ্যাট আই হিয়ার আই এম আপগ্রেডিং লাইক ইউর ফোন downloading uploading uh, the uh, what upgrading the different apps yes i upgraded my mantra app and my uh, every two days never desire uh, you're asking for disaster so always keep that exactly as it is that's why guru mantra these are based on shraddha they have your it's your direct link to god it's mystical don't fiddle with it it's not a box you can open and change the settings every time no so as it is given keep on practicing so are is ever going to compartmentalize my spiritual practices only practically so but ultimately no when you dwell upon vedanta when you t- listen to these talks and read the text and even practice the meditation once in a while you will only strengthen your core spiritual practice you begin to see the reality behind that ওইটার সত্যতা তখন বোধ হবে এই বেদান্ত করলে দুটো আলাদা নয় কিন্তু প্র্যাকটিসে দুটোকে আলাদা রাখতে হবে ওই গুরুর দেওয়া মন্ত্র আর ইষ্ট কখনো ডিস্টার্ব করতে নেই ইন কম্পিউটার্স দের ইজ আ ওয়ার্ড কলড ফায়ার ওয়াল সো ইটস আইসোলেটেড ফ্রম দ্য রেস্ট অফ দি এনভায়রনমেন্ট ভাইরাসেস ক্যানট গেট ইন টু ইট অর আপগ্রেডস ক্যান ক্যান্ট গেট ইন টু ইট সো ইউ টু ফায়ার ওয়াল ইট সো দ্যাট রিমেন্স উইথ ইউ and that's a core practice that will continue till the end of life there will come a time when the two will merge it will come automatically there we don't have to do anything about it don't fiddle with it don't try to change it i'll tell you one of the few monks whom i know i feel very strongly that they were enlightened nirmuktanand ji upen maharaj who lived to the age of 100 um two i think or 101 when i asked him when he was nearly 100 years old in the he was a disciple of swami shivananda ji he was in belur math he was sitting in the temple of masharada there facing um which faces the ganga now what had happened was oh i won't tell you the whole story it's a long one but there's one specific question let me tell you and uh, that's related to yours so i said exactly this question i said swami Uh, the guru has given me an ishta devata the form of god i'm supposed to meditate on and love and pray to and a mantra given by by the guru that's one thing so there's a form and a mantra and a practice and we are studying upanishads the gita and the brahma sutras and all these vedantic texts and um, where they talk about one existence consciousness bliss an impersonal reality which has to be realized not repeated or visualized or meditated what is the connection between that impersonal atman and the personal god which uh, guru has taught us what is the connection 
And his answer was this. I'll repeat, I'll translate the exact words, make up it what you will. Do you think that two, they are two? And he said, do you think that the Ishta Devata, the chosen God, is only here? It is here, there and everywhere. And then he said, there is only one reality. Then he repeated to me, he had served Swami Akhandanandaji. So what Swami Akhandananda had told him and what Sri Ramakrishna has said to Swami Akhandananda and other direct disciples. I'll tell you the exact, it's like a mantra, which and it's a direct answer to your question. Jejar Ishto Shetar Atma. What your Ishta Devata is, what, as the Guru has taught you, that is the Atman. Only the Atman has pure consciousness, awareness, there's no form. There's no objective, objective uh, thing that you can hold on to. So a divine name and form is added. And then you are given a practice. But literally, though we don't understand it, they seem to be two different things to our minds. Remember this and take it on faith. So your Ishta Devata as given by the Guru with the mantra is exactly the Atman of the Vedanta. Take it on faith and at one time it will become clear. Very good. One question, and then we'll come to you, gentlemen there. One question from the internet audience. Oh, I'm, they're early today. I'm getting a signal that the food is ready. No, we have, uh, no, they'll have to hold on. <laughs> Don't get hungry right now. <laughs> we still have about 20 minutes to go. If you permit, I'm going to give you two. Two questions, yes. This one is from Vipan K. Is Brahman the cause of the universe? If not, how can the universe come out of nothing? And Sudhir K, does Advaita Vedanta recognize the omniscience of God? Does it consider him or her all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent? Or is such a God a myth in Advaita Vedanta? All right, two questions. Is Brahman the cause of the universe? If not, then the, how did the universe come from? How does the universe come from no, nothing? Or how, how can the universe come from nothing? That's one question. And the other question is, does Advaita Vedanta recognize God or accept God? God means a God of religion, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, everywhere. So, or is such a God a myth in Advaita Vedanta? So it's a standard question. What's the status of the old guy in... <laughs> See, in, in, in Vedanta, it can be an old guy, it can be the old lady, it, um, it can be young. Uh, and man, woman, without form, in all forms. Yes, so direct question. Does Advaita Vedanta accept God? Yes. Yes, it does. But it is a very nuanced approach, which you must understand. This question is, is understandable. Why this question has been asked? This has been asked for more than a thousand years. Ever since Shankaracharya wrote the Bhashya's commentaries actually explaining what the Upanishads mean from an Advaita perspective, the immediate attack was from two sides. The Buddhists, of course, but from the Hindus themselves. Uh, and Uttarakhand Sadhus put it humorously. The Hindus were shocked. These fellows, non-dualists, are they Hindus at all? They will say in Hindi, Shivji ki aradhana karte ho? Do you worship Shiva? Do you accept Shiva Ratri or the worship the Divine Mother? Or uh, do you go on pilgrimages? Do you go to temples? 
Uh, do you uh, take baths in holy rivers? Uh, do you perform shraddha and all the, 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 the rituals of, the Hindu, of, of Hinduism? Are you Hindus at all or not? Very big question. Doubtful guys. These guys are... <laughs> and the attacks, not only just common people. Philosophers on the Hindu side. Prachanna Bodhaha. Shankaracharya is, is a crypto-Buddhist. The Buddhists rejected him and the Hindus also rejected him. <laughs> so what was his answer to the, to the Hindu side? Uh, his answer was that the sadhus in Uttarakhand put it nicely. Are baba, hum sab mante hain. Yes, my dear fellow, we accept everything. We accept everything. We can take a dip in the holy Ganga. We go, can go to the temple and worship. In fact, we can accept more than you can accept. We can accept Shiva and Vishnu and Kali, but we can also accept the God of the Christians or the Muslims because we all see that they are all different forms and names of the same reality. So we accept it. So what is the conception of God in Advaita Vedanta? It is this. It is called Saguna Brahman. Brahman with qualities. What, what is then? What is Brahman without qualities? Attributeless Brahman. What is called apophatic in a uh, in technical language, philosophical language, the path of not this, not this. That ultimate reality, which we sensed with that meditation on awareness, that is not an object. You cannot describe it in any term, but it's real. It's real. In fact, it is the only reality that there is. So. But that reality alone appears as the god of religion. So when you're talking about the god of religion, Advaita Vedanta calls it Saguna Brahman, with qualities. What qualities? Exactly the ones he mentioned. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing, all, all uh, present everywhere. Um, um, then um, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good. Ramanujacharya. In Vishishtadvaita, he has a phrase, Ananta Kalyana Gunagana, endless auspicious qualities. So does Advaita Vedanta accept it? Yes, absolutely. And because it is ultimately attributeless, when it takes on attributes, it can have it can have the attributes of Narayana, of Shiva, of the Divine Mother, uh, or it can be um, uh, Jehovah of the Jews, or the Allah of the Muslims, or the Father in Heaven of Christians. It can be. The Advaitin has no problem. So this is one, one side of it. How do we understand it? It's not very difficult. As we do the analysis on ourselves, I am not the body, not the mind, which we did, attuning the subject to the Absolute, I am the awareness, existence, consciousness, bliss. So this existence, consciousness, bliss, this, this, this consciousness within, Chidananda Rupa Shivoham, with an overlay of the mind and the sensory system and this body is Sarva Priyananda. And it is this person there, Mo, and is that person there, and that other person, this man, that woman, um, the, these plants and animals and dolphins and the whales and... All living beings. That one consciousness. Plus mind, plus body. Differentiated. And thinking of itself as a limited being. That same consciousness is absolute. Brahman alone thinks of itself as a jiva. 
sentient being. Brahman alone is the jiva. In ignorance, jiva. In knowledge, Brahman. Then pick one. What is reality? Brahman. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna is to say, Pash Baddha Jeeva, Pash Mukta Tied in the bondage, and in bondage it is Jiva, sentient being, us. Freed from bondage, it is none other than Shiva, the ultimate reality. Now, what is God here? I understand, this is the Jiva, this is us. But what is God? Just one tweak of this. That same absolute consciousness, existence consciousness bliss, associated not with just Sarvapriyananda mind and body, but associated with all these minds, all these bodies, not these alone. The billions of bodies of all living men and women, all living creatures, uh, from the tiniest bacteria to the biggest blue whale, all of them. And if there are living beings in other worlds to all, all the pointy-eared aliens and whatnot, <laughs> whatever Hollywood can conceive of, all of them, that one consciousness associated with all of them. Can you imagine such a being? The way you look at yourself, imagine how such a being would look at itself. This is the Vedantic conception of God. The immanent consciousness in the universe identified with the entire living and non-living universe also. The Vedanta, Vedanta has a word for this. It is called Virat. The vast. Virat there, the vast, does not mean the, the physical universe. It means consciousness associated with the entire physical universe looking upon itself as one reality. Now, does this exist? This is the God of Vedanta. This is what Arjuna saw in the 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita is Vishwarupa Darshan. Another name of Virat is Vishwarupa. When Arjuna said, I want to see thy cosmic form. He didn't know what he was asking for. <laughs> yeah. The result was he was terrified. The mind, nowadays they would say mind-blowing experience. Imagine such a form. You know, in public speaking, they say we get afraid because 100 people are staring at you. You get nervous. If one person stares at you, you feel nervous. 100 people are staring at you, 1,000 people. The biggest audience I've faced is in Belurmat, 14,000 people. So it's scary because so many people are staring at you. But imagine if all the people in the world today, the 7 billion people living and the billions who have lived earlier and the billions who will live in future and all the living creatures... From bacteria to lions and tigers and elephants and whales and whatnot. All of them together, all of that together, suddenly turns and looks at you. <laughs> what would you feel? <laughs> and I'm not making this up. When in the 11th chapter, when he sees, Arjuna sees this, the commentator says, what we all experience in slices of time and space, the life we are living, Throughout our lives, all the food that we have eaten, all the people that we have met, all the places that we have visited, all the sensations we have had, seeing, hearing, smelling, touch. If all of that, in one time, not just one person, all persons, all experiences at one time, they suddenly burst forth in your consciousness. And as a person, not just an impersonal thing, as the whole thing as a person, or turns and looks down at you. Immediate reaction, Arjuna says, every hair in my body is standing on end. And the earth trembles at, the, at this, this experience. The earth doesn't tremble, but it's just that Arjuna feels like that. He sees this. He, what beautiful poetry. As if a thousand suns were to rise in the sky together. One sun in the sky. 
as if a thousand suns were to rise in the sky together. Oppenheimer, he quoted this verse when he said, when he saw the first atom bomb explosion. As if a thousand suns rising in the sky together, I come as time, the destroyer of worlds. That's just one atom bomb. But imagine, uh, so, so that is God in Vedanta. That is accepted. You might be thinking, there's a b- I hear a butt lurking in the <laughs> background. You're right, there's a butt. <laughs> this is accepted in what Vedanta calls Vyavaharika, transactional plane. Transactional plane. I am an individual being, that is the vast God. But beyond God and individual, beyond ocean and wave, there is one reality, the water which is both ocean and wave, there's one reality, one Nirguna Brahman, which is Saguna Brahman and Jiva. What Advaita Vedanta wants to teach is not that, not just that the personal devotion of you to that vast vastness. Rather, it is beyond that vastness and beyond your personality, there is one infinite, attributeless Brahman, impersonal reality. That's the only reality. That is what I am. So what Vedanta teaches, Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. Which Brahman? Not God. Vedanta does not teach I am God. Vedanta teaches I am that impersonal absolute. Where there is no God, there is no individual. That is what is upsetting to the dualists. What do you mean no God? (laughs) The gentleman there. Please tell us your name and ask the question. Sudhakar Babu, yes. I have one simple practical question and a regular question. So this morning when you led us in meditation, are we supposed to do our own meditation or follow your instructions? The one that was given to us by our Guru. Oh, the one that is given to you by your Guru? Of course, always. Hmm. Yeah. So don't get hung up on the techniques of meditation. There's no end to that. Guru taught me something. I've been doing it nicely for 10 years. But this, this is really a fine Vedantic meditation. Poor old Guru is now replaced. <laughs> now let me take up this new improved. Never do such a thing. I don't. I have read all of this. I have practiced them also. But what my Guru gave me and the mantra, always. My personal belief is all this spiritual development progress is coming from that little mantra. Which the Guru has given. That's the personal belief. All Ishta Mantra. Always follow that. And the other things will come and go. If you like something, practice it. It is a good supplement. But it's not your main diet. Yeah. Uh, this is the second question. You've got to bear with me. Uh, I'm troubled by this all the time. The, I know the question of consciousness. Uh, people thought there is a thing called life force. Hmm. And when you die, life force goes away. But as you understand now, modern science, there's no such thing. It's an illusion of life force. Where is the, can we use the same analogy for consciousness? I mean, it gives you a feeling that, Mm -hmm. but, okay. I understand perfectly, because we have this discussion all the time. Uh, Let me put it in this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you a biologist or? I'm a physician. Physician. So what he's saying is, at one time people thought there's something called a life force. And when your body dies, means the life goes away, prana goes away. But as biology has advanced, 
um, we have understood more and more about it. Bill Conrad is there. He is a, a biophysicist. He's our senior most member at 95 years. So now let me put it, let me change the question a little bit and put it this way, because I, I have, we have discussed this. We have something called a philosophy cafe here in uh, the Ethical Society, which meets once a month. And among the leaders, there are philosophers from Colombia, from CUNY. So among the leaders is Massimo. He is the head of philosophy in, at CUNY. And he's a biologist by training and also a philosopher. So his argument is exactly this. When I ask him, we have discussions on consciousness studies. So where do you stand on the hard problem of consciousness? He dismisses it. He says there's no fundamental thing called consciousness. It's just a process of a living brain. Uh, it's a byproduct, epiphenomenal pro process. And he, the, ex answer, the, question, the answer he gives, the reason he gives is exactly this. He says, right now, because we don't understand the brain well enough and consciousness well enough at all, we don't understand. That's why we think there's a mysterious thing called consciousness, which has to be discovered. But a similar thing was there, he said, at the turn of the century, where life was not understood. And it was thought that one of the questions which science will never be able to explain is life. And people called it things like Ilan, Vital, um, you know, Bergson, and all this. so there is something corresponding to the Indian idea of prana. All ancient cultures had this. Chinese had the idea of chi. And Japanese had the idea of ki, and the Indians had the idea of prana. Um, Greeks had the idea of pneuma, life breath. Now as science has advanced, we have understood that what we call life is basically a collection of several biological processes going on in this body, he said. And to a great extent we are able to synthesize many parts of the similar things in the, in the lab in a very simple way in the laboratory also so we understand it down to the molecular level we know it's no some mysterious single thing which comes and goes not like that that's what he said so one day we will be able to, able to understand consciousness also like that one day uh, when we understand the brain better so there's no such separate consciousness all this consciousness come uh, you know being the ultimate reality or of the soul, immortal soul, which religions believe in, nothing like that. He says that. Now, the answer is, I'll give you the simple Vedantic answer, see if it makes sense. To me, it makes perfect sense. You know, you'll be surprised to know that, according to Vedanta, life is also material. World is material, body is material, life is material, Mind is material. By material, the Sanskrit word I'm using is jada. The original Sanskrit word they have, chit jada, consciousness and matter. How do they distinguish? They have a very elegant way of distinguishing in Vedanta. What is consciousness and what is not consciousness? This is, you'll always look at your own experience. In your experience right now, whatever you are aware of, whatever you are aware of, belongs to the category of jada, objective reality. What is objective? That which appears to consciousness. Then what is consciousness? Clearly it cannot be an object. Anything that is object must be, an, must be jada, an object to consciousness. So the pure subject, which is not an object, which is the one which is aware of everything, including mind, that is consciousness according to Advaita Vedanta. Now what follows from this? What will Advaitin say to an objection like this? Advaitin will say there is no problem. That you have been able to explain life in terms of other objective processes. One objective process is explained in terms of simpler objective processes. Of course, 
in principle there is no problem prana or life is an objective process and you have explained it in terms of other simpler objective processes good but if you now claim that a set of objective processes in the brain is generating the subject which is not an object you must remember the the knife with which they are cutting reality in vedanta subject and object why why will you will I, will i accept that because that's how you experience the in universe i lost you doc i lost you sir life is an objective reality okay because we first of all remember what what i have i'm defining as objective anything that you are aware of or can be aware of is an object okay anything that is presented to consciousness is jada is okay. not conscious you are consciousness and your mind your thoughts your breath prana body world all are objects jada are you with me so far mm-hmm. huh? in, you have to change the paradigm <coughs> now in this paradigm life also is an object mm-hmm. and you have explained life in terms of other objects biological uh, processes there is a objective process of uh, life and they have been explained in terms of you know how um, there is uh, the physiology of the body and all of that those are all objective so an objective process explained in terms of more simpler objective processes nothing there no problem in principle okay but now the pure subject consciousness how can it be produced by objects the bo- brain is an object whatever is happening in the neurons is an object how c- so one object can produce another object like so neurons can produce the electrical activity of neurons but how can it produce you the subject why does not make sense to you or a scientifically trained person is the scientifically trained person has a deep objective bias according to science look at the, the look at the the uh, tremendous contradiction at the heart of science science studies everything as an object it cannot but do that what do you do when you do science be objective so everything that is studied is an object and that works fine when you are studying objects but when you are studying the subject the only way science can work is to reduce the sub- subject into an object not only that science has earlier made up its mind that the object is the only reality everything in the universe is an object but that's not true that is falsified by your own experience what science has already made up its mind is that there are this what you are calling subject is a byproduct of an objective brain are you with me at every step yes i can understand the fundamental primordial uh, not in this philosophical not in spiritual sense the uh scientists have done that way right yeah. from the very beginning i so can understand it, it, that the, yeah. the, uh, let us call it the primitive the mm-hmm. primordial paradigmic uh, the paradigm difference mm-hmm. science never considers this science says this talk about subject object is the way of talking actually everything is an objective reality no all of it is fine as long as you are studying quasars or quarks or living cells they are all objects even when you're trying to study the mind according to vedanta even mind is an object why why is mind an object because what is the definition of object anything that you experience is an object but by that very definition 
when you now say the objective thing like the living brain can produce the subject, you are making what is called in philosophy a category error. And this is very clear from Vedantic perspective. Where is the necessity to invoke category error? Because object and object relationship is clear. But the subject is something entirely different in nature from an object. How can you jump from the object to the subject? Never in scientific uh, history have you ever come across something like consciousness. And it's strange that you have not. Because consciousness is ever present. All science is done in consciousness. It is we are first person experience is conscious. And that is where you do science. That is where you are a theist, an atheist. That is where you are scientific or unscientific. Everything in life is in consciousness from a Vedantic perspective. Not in Vedantic perspective, in a common sense perspective also. So, this consciousness, it's not an object. This is what Vedanta says. This is what science is unable to grasp. Look at all the prevalent theories of consciousness now. They're either reductive, that someone like, like Massimo told me, that it is a process of the living brain. We don't know how. Give us time, we'll find out. This is called promissory materialism. I'll give you a materialistic explanation. I promise. 10 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, we will find out. What David Chalmers in NYU says, that you don't understand the question. What you feel as first-person experiences, pleasure, pain, there is something there, that first-personness of that experience, there is no connection between that and the objective realities in the world. In fact, if you look at your own experience, your personal experience, these objective experiences are in you. Yes. Will come, yes. These objective realities are experienced in consciousness. Isn't it? What is more primary in your experience? You, the experiencer. Then only experience is possible. Are we to understand consciousness is something like, say, I have magnesium in my body. There's magnesium everywhere. Or iron, iron everywhere. I own part of the iron and magnesium. No, not even like that. Mm. Iron and magnesium still are objective realities. Mm. Is it like a... Life force and electromagnetic force? No. Life force, electromagnetic force, they are also objective realities. Just use that, that thing. See, what we are saying is, attend to your own experience, right here and right now. What is there in your experience? Just do this. What is there in your experience? There are many things that you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, varied though they are, they are all objects. What you think and feel and understand and remember, very subtle things, but they are also objects. Why, are you, why am I calling them objects? Because you are aware of them. Now that which is aware of all of this, is it an object? Can I, do you believe in the Socratic uh, logic, say, uh, something new cannot arise, it must be dormant all along? Do yes. you believe there's consciousness in dormant and non-living things, uh, plants and animals and then uh, sentient beings? Good question. Do you believe that something new cannot arise? That question I forgot to answer, that how can your universe come from nothing? That's a good, good question. 
so do you believe that consciousness is dormant in all living beings you know what what the, what would be the if you understand the answer which i'm going to give from a vedantic perspective then you will get vedanta vedanta says it's not that consciousness is dormant or active somewhere in the universe rather the universe lies dormant in consciousness uh, according to vedanta the consciousness is the reality in which the universe lies dormant and then it appears you can call it a big bang you can call it evolution life appearing and then conscious beings appearing like us and then life disappearing and the life the universe ending going back to dormancy gita says from the from the unmanifest the manifest comes and goes back to the unmanifest but unmanifest manifest and unmanifest again this cycle it's all happening in consciousness and advaita vedanta will go forth forward and say it's not even happy, happening it's a movie being played the reality all throughout is a changeless consciousness see i'll end with this the four possibilities are there i'll just give you in a uh, in a seed form this answer and i heard it i mean i read it from a non dualist teacher in hindi who had no idea of modern science he says consciousness and matter let's call it object matter the material universe and consciousness what is the relationship there are four possibilities are there one is consciousness emerges from matter which is the the old materialistic charvaka argument in, in ancient india and which is exactly the modern scientific argument matter time space matter energy this is fundamental and at one point planets develop living uh, more complex matter comes organic matter and from that living beings come and they organize themselves more and more by darwinian evolution into complex beings and then they develop nervous systems and brains and from those nervous systems and brains all material there's a byproduct called consciousness this is like a flame from a candle epiphenomenal and there is no consciousness without matter so matter is the reality out of which consciousness flickers somehow that's one theory the second theory is just the opposite matter emerges from consciousness whose theory is this all religions hold it when they say god is the creator that's religious language if you ask them is your god conscious or unconscious they all say our god is conscious so actually matter emerges from consciousness consciousness is the creator of a material universe religion says which religion all theistic religions say it second theory this is not advaita not non dualism third neither emerges from the other both are eternal and parallel sankhya theory purusha prakriti right yeah. consciousness and um, time space matter energy prakriti they, <coughs> they exist eternally parallel to each other and interact where do they interact in us we are consciousness interacting with matter that's a living being according to sankhya very sophisticated theory in fact what david chamas is pr- proposing now as panpsychism here it it's a variation not exactly sankhya but a variation of the sankhya theory this is also not advaita there is another one which he has not counted um which is the nagarjuna's buddhistic theory matter is also shunya consciousness is also shunya <laughs> both are appearances in the void it's a different thing to explore now the if you if you add that then that's the, that's the fourth one the fifth one is the advaita theory the advaita theory is consciousness alone is real it's the only reality 
which in which matter appears consciousness does not create matter it does not become matter matter appears periodically as universe as life and as conscious beings and disappears but consciousness is fundamental that consciousness i'm using the english word consciousness there's no parallel to it you might say what proof i'll leave you with this the proof is look at your own experience where does matter appear where does matter appear in your consciousness in your mind where does mind appear in consciousness where does mind disappear in deep sleep in consciousness very good profound matters now let us eat some matter is necessary <laughs> consciousness demands matter now om shante 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna arpanam astu